Hello, this is Pastor Nate Ward with Open Door Church, and I wanted to take a moment to welcome you to our podcast. It's my personal prayer that you would be encouraged and encountered by the Holy Spirit and challenged by His Word. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Your word would go forth and take root in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. Okay, you guys can be seated. I promise it'll be a little bit before I ask you to stand again. Oh, you look at these jokesters. Oh, man. Guys, uh, so last week we were in Luke chapter 7, and we were looking at this particular story where Jesus shows up um, in the city of Nain, right? So we encounter, we encounter Jesus here in this chapter uh, with the widow from Nain that's escorting out of the city. She's grieving. There's a funeral procession that's taking place. And Jesus shows up with his entourage, right? He's got all these people that are following him. He's got a crowd. And uninvited, he crashes this funeral, <laughs> right? There's, this, there's mourners going on. There's all these things that are taking place. And the, the mother is grieved. She's weeping. Her son is dead. It's a bad situation. And Jesus, uh, Jesus shows up with a, a crowd of people around him, and he turns the funeral upside down, does he not? He stops it in his tracks. He says that he sees the mother's tears, uh, is gripped with compassion for her, and uh, kind of flip thing, flips things up on its head, and what was once a funeral is now a celebration, right? Because the young man that was dead and being carried out of the city gates, Jesus reached in, touched, he sat back up, began to speak, and great fear and awe overcame everybody, and the message about Jesus went forth. It was a, it was a really awesome, powerful story that we looked at, and I, I, I came up with like this terminology, because I, I don't know if it's really, but Jesus was uninvited to this funeral, right? <laughs> I, I don't know if you, I guess you don't really send out invitations to funerals all the time or anything like that, but uh, Jesus wasn't, uh, Jesus wasn't particularly uh, welcome <laughs> at this particular funeral at the beginning of the story, right? But it was, we kind of made this remarkable discovery that really hit home with me, was that every time we see Jesus at a funeral in scripture, every time we see uh, something that seemingly uh, looks like a funeral, uh, when Jesus shows up, that program is canceled, is it not? Jesus shows up every single time. We see it first in Luke chapter 7, which we read about last week, right? He shows up to the, 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 the funeral procession that's coming out of the city of Nain, right? And it turns into a celebration. We see it again in Luke chapter 8, which is where we're going to be today with the story of Jairus' daughter. Um, we see it again later on with the story of Lazarus, right? All these different times where there's funerals and there's people mourning and, the, and grieving the loss of a loved one. Jesus shows up on the scene and there's a different outcome than what is traditionally expected. We see it come full circle and really kind of primarily manifest with Jesus and his own death and resurrection, right? We see a funeral there being canceled after three days, and he rises victorious over death, hell, and the grave, and that's something that we should be excited about because he's still reigning victorious over death to this day. And he's going to forever and ever and ever, and that's a good thing. And so a theme verse that kind of runs through all of these stories that we're talking about, uh, that we've been encountering with Jesus raising the dead, I really believe uh, Romans 4.17 hits home with this. It says that we believe in a God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And the backdrop for this whole verse, this Romans 4.17, is it's actually examining the life of Abraham as a man of faith. And the whole, the whole context of that particular chapter is talking about faith. And I realize faith is one of those words that we use, like we throw around, but we really don't know what it means. <laughs> Has anybody ever encountered that with like the Bible and like Christianese? Right, we talk about belief, we talk about faith, we talk about hope, all these things, but they're, 
for me, sometimes it's hard to really wrap my mind around what we're actually saying. So I thought appropriately this morning that we could talk a little bit about faith uh, to give us a context for the story that we're going to study in a moment. You see, uh, Scripture defines faith in Hebrews chapter 11 as the reality of what we hope for. It's the evidence of things we cannot see. I've always used the, the kind of the simple layman definition of faith is best described as belief in action. Um, you know, because actually, James tells us that it does us good to believe in God, Right? But even the demons believe in God, believe that there's one God, and they shudder at that fact. And so we, we have to understand that belief is not a good definition of what faith is. Belief is a starting point. Belief is good. But I can believe that something, I could believe that this platform is going to hold me, right? It's a different thing when I get on the platform for myself, right? This is kind of a silly definition, but this is me putting my belief, putting my trust in action, right? And that's what I was, I have faith that this is going to hold me, right? <laughs> Does that make sense? I think it's best described by a story I, I heard a, a long time ago, and I, I went back and revisited and looked it up. There's a guy named Charles Blondin. Has anybody ever heard that name? Is anybody familiar with it? You're probably familiar with the story, maybe, but in 1859, Charles Blondin, he was, an, he was a gymnast from France who immigrated to the United States and saw Niagara Falls and decided that he was going to tightrope walk across Niagara Falls in this big spectacle. And so he proceeds to do this unthinkable feat, and he's, it's pretty impressive, right? And so he goes back and back again and again to try to one-up himself every time that he does it. People are amazed. Uh, people are coming from both sides of, like, Canada and the United States to watch this guy. And, and there's almost, like, this sense, like, of hope that he might fall and, like, crash and die because it would be a cool thing to see, Right? I don't, I don't, I don't, no, I'm just, everybody's like, what? You're morbid, Pastor Nate. <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking, like, what would possess somebody to go watch that? I could not watch that. I watched some things like that. Uh, there was a guy that recently, like, did, like, a skydiving stunt, and he did it live, and I couldn't watch it. The only way that I could watch it was I read the news article afterward that he lived, and then I could watch it. Like, those, those kind of things just are crazy, Right. So I couldn't imagine it being 1859 when he does this. But, I mean, he does it in, like, a, a crazy spectacle. So he does it once, and he does it a few more times. It actually says that he did it once with a sack over his head, so he did it blind. He did it once on stilts. <laughs> like, this is just insane, right? And then he does it again on a unicycle, like, across Niagara Falls. It's not just like a I, – I tried this once. Uh, they do this slacklining thing, and I was terrible at it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to spare you the details, but it's difficult, and it's not fun, and I don't get it. But I couldn't imagine, like, slacklining across Niagara Falls. I know you got the wind, and you got the spray of the water and all this stuff, let alone on stilts or on a unicycle or, or any of this stuff. He one time carried a stove. This was the last time he did it, like a wood-burning stove, out with wood, and, the, and carried out to the middle of the slack, in the middle of the, of the whatchamacallit, <laughs> tightrope, that's the thing, proceeded to cook an omelet <laughs> on a stove, on a tightrope, <laughs> over Niagara Falls. I, I think he's probably pretty comfortable with himself at this point in time. He cooks an omelet, and that was kind of his, his big feat. But at one point in time, he, uh, he walked across blindfolded, grabbed a wheelbarrow from Canada and came back with a wheelbarrow to the United States. And the story goes that uh, after pushing the wheelbarrow across, uh, there was plenty of oohs and ahs and everybody was amazed. And he began to ask the question, how many of you guys believe that I could push a person across this tightrope with this wheelbarrow? And everybody ex like just was exuberant and said, yes, we believe you could do it. And when he asked for a volunteer, <laughs> he was met with silence. <laughs> right? There's a difference between believing that you can do something, right? Believing, believing, when we take it to God, there's a difference in belief 
and getting in the wheelbarrow, right? Placing faith in this guy would have been getting in the wheelbarrow to go across the tightrope. In fact, he actually did it uh, the next, uh, so this happened in July. It happened in August. He didn't push the guy in a wheelbarrow, but he actually carried his manager on his shoulders and on his back across the, the, the tightrope. Just an interesting guy, fascinating story. You want to know how he died? Anybody? What? <laughs> he died when he was 72, at home, natural causes. Anyway, just interesting, interesting story, right? But do you guys understand when we're talking about faith, right? We can't always see it. It's not something that's remotely tangible. We have reason for belief, but faith actually hopes in things that we cannot see. Our faith, when it's placed in God, means that we're placing it in someone, not a circumstance. Not what's readily tangible to to our five senses all the time. When we place our faith in God, it moves past the place of logic and reason and the things that we would have, the, the conscious things that we would have to actually hope in something. Right? Does that make sense? You guys are tracking with me. So faith... Faith, in spite of all the craziness, placed trust in someone and their ability. So when we're having faith in Jesus, when we have faith in God, we're trusting in his ability to get the job done. And can I tell you, there's no safer place to be than the wheelbarrow when Jesus is pushing it. Does it make sense? Good. I'm glad we've got that. Well, beginning in Luke chapter 8, if you guys will turn with me there, we're going to continue with looking at Jesus and how uh, he brought healing and raised the dead. And it's, this, this is a particularly interesting passage of scripture because we see Jesus responding to faith. And so I want to be very clear before we go on, um, because I, I've heard this abused, I've heard this misused before. I've heard preachers talk about that, well, you just didn't have faith enough for your healing, or you didn't have faith enough for somebody to get saved, or, or all these different things. I'm not, we're not going down that road this morning. What we're talking about, though, is genuine faith and that God does respond to. And so we're going to, anyway, we're going to go down this road, and it's going to be good. Amen? Okay, I'm going to begin by reading in Luke 8, verse 40. It says, on the other side of the lake... The crowds welcomed Jesus because they had been waiting for him. Then a man named Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come home with him. His only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying. I just want to set the scene here real quick. I want to give you some information on this Jairus character, right? He was the ruler of the synagogue uh, back... um, we see back in the, the Galilean area, right? Because this happens right after Jesus crosses over, you know, right after he goes to the Gerasenes, and right, he calms the storm, the disciples are freaked out, they, he, drives the demon, he drives out the 2,000 demons out of the pigs, and then it's time to go back home. And so on their way home, he gets back to the other side, and there's a massive crowd waiting for Jesus. And this man, Jairus, presses in through the crowd to fall at Jesus' feet. You see, he was a man of nobility. We get his name here in Scripture. He was likely of significant wealth and social influence, being the ruler of a synagogue. You didn't just become a ruler of a synagogue in Jesus' day because you loved the Lord the most. There was, it was more a social position than it was of one being uh, actually esteemed by God. It was very much how a lot of churches nowadays, unfortunately, are run. You had to be a shrewd business manager in order to find yourself in this place. Um, and so he was managing the, the synagogue in the spiritual aspect and also the monetary uh, business aspect, unfortunately, that would have existed in the culture in Roman-occupied Judea in this day. So it's very interesting to me. And so you have to understand that it's not a small, light thing that he comes and falls at Jesus' feet. That we find him recognizing Jesus as important. He recognizes Jesus as the only one that can help his situation. And to me, that's, uh, that's remarkable. We see him here as a dad that's in desperation, do we not? 
right? You see, his only daughter's life is on the line. His religion, his religious system didn't have a solution for him. There was no hope found in Judaism at that moment in time that could have helped his little girl. His social status wasn't going to help him. He didn't have connections enough with the right doctors or anything like that that were going to change the outcome. And see, all of his money and influence didn't have a chance in changing his situation. We see a man here marked by desperation that finds himself at Jesus' feet. I, I took a little side note and just wrote a little notation here because I see here a father that is pleading the case for someone that is helpless, pleading the case for his child <laughs> that is dying. And if you guys remember the last number of weeks, I've been talking a little bit about spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers and the great need for us to, to, for as a church to have people that are willing to be burdened by those that are dead and dying to come to Jesus and ask for him to respond. How we need more spiritual fathers and mothers to press through the crowd and fall at Jesus' feet for those who are spiritually dead and dying. You remember, Jesus didn't raise the boy in Luke chapter 7 because of the boy's condition or his plight or the fact that he was dead. You know, I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't care about those that are spiritually dying. I'm not saying that, that he's not powerful enough to intervene and that he doesn't want to. What I am saying is that Scripture paints a clear picture to us. That Scripture was abundantly clear that Jesus' response in the previous chapter was motivated entirely about the mother and the tears that she sowed and how he was moved in compassion for her sake and presented the son back to her. And what I'm saying, friends, is I believe that we need to have tears once again for those that are spiritually dead and dying. I believe God wants to place some emotional connectedness to those that are lost and hurting in your and I's midst that we might come to Jesus' feet and look to him as the only option for a dying world. I say this because I'm the byproduct of somebody like this. You know, when I was 16 years old and I gave my life to Jesus, I didn't have anybody in my family. I didn't have anybody remotely connected to me that was praying for my soul. In fact, I was raising hell at Pueblo West High School, causing a ruckus in my algebra class, and I gave my life to Jesus over spring break, and I came back. And I just, God moved mightily in my life. You know, my parents were heroin addicts. I came from a very broken home. Didn't have any hope of salvation. I was actually a practicing Satanist, believe it or not. I, I've shared my story a lot. But that was my story. That was, that was kind of where I identified. And I found out after I gave my life to the Lord, I had Mr. Halverson, he was my algebra teacher, freshman year of high school, pull me aside after class one day and asked what changed in my life. And I excitedly told him about how Jesus had saved me and changed my life. And he just quietly told me, you know, I've been praying for you. God's got a plan and a purpose for your life. And I say that because there was a man that was willing to pray to Jesus <laughs> for me. <laughs> and I found, I, I found hope and a life and a future. And I'm just saying, friends, I... We can talk about reaching this world for Jesus. But I love how D.L. Moody said that we have no right to witness to somebody until we've cried for them. I want to share in the Lord's heart. I want, to, I want to have that kind of deepened intercession for the lost and the hurting that God might respond. And you see, the sad reality is that most do not have someone who is willing to go to Jesus for them. I'm just wondering what it would look like if we were burdened with the Lord's heart and willing to press through the crowd and find ourselves at Jesus' feet. <laughs> Maybe the child's not our own, but if we would take on the idea or this thought that we've been talking about of a spiritual father or a spiritual mother and lay hold of Jesus for somebody that isn't doing it themselves. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? Hmm. You see, Jairus shows up and falls at the feet of Jesus in desperation as a last resort. 
I think it's interesting to note that we don't see him have this great level of faith like the centurion had when he came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I'm a man under authority. You're a man under authority. You say the word, my friend's going to get healed. My servant's going to get healed. You just do your thing, Jesus. He's got great faith, right? Jesus says, I'm telling you, I've not seen such faith in all of the children of Israel. Go, right? This powerful, powerful uh, encounter that we have. Jairus doesn't have that kind of faith. And guess what? It's okay. I think, of, uh, I think of this because I believe that Jesus is okay with just a little bit of faith. Now, now hear me out here. I want to have more faith. I want to have greater faith. I want to have, uh, have an ever-increasing amount of faith. But if your faith isn't to the place where it's moving mountains right now, it's not mustard seed side yet. <laughs> it's like molecule status. I think Jesus can still use that. And he's willing to walk with you through it and see that grow and see that, that reach a state of maturity because we see that happen in this story. But I think of Peter, right? You know, we give Peter a bad time. Like he gets a, he gets a hard rap, doesn't he? Right? We remember Peter in the boat Jesus calls him out and says, hey, come to me, Peter. He gets out and walks on the water. He sinks. He takes his eyes off of Jesus. They get back in the boat, and Jesus starts, like, rebuking him, saying, hey, you little, you little faith, right? <laughs> and we're like, come on, Peter, have more faith than that. What we failed to remember is the fact that there was actually 11 other disciples in the boat that didn't come out when Jesus called them, right? <laughs> they didn't actually step foot on the water. And I don't know about you, but I love the fact that Peter at least took a couple steps. He's the only other person in history that we have recounted that walked on water, right? That's pretty cool. <laughs> and his little faith got him to that place. And so I would rather, I love how Pastor Jamie would say it all the time. Pastor Jamie was a, the, the leader of the ministry school that we did. And he'd say, I'd rather be a wet water walker than a dry boat talker. <laughs> and I love that. So if you've got a little bit of faith this morning, you're saying, you know what, Pastor Nate, it's not a much, but I have a little bit. God can do something with that. And I'm excited for what he's going to do. Hmm. Let's continue to read. Back in 42. As Jesus went with Jairus, as he went with him, he was surrounded by the crowds. I want you to take special note of this. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years years with constant bleeding and she could find no cure it goes on to say in in some translations depending on that she had exhausted all of her money if we read back in mark the other account of this mark chapter 5 we'll read the the, the parallel account to this story um, it says that she exhausted and wasted everything that she had on doctors trying to fix her situation and she could find no cure. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe immediately. The bleeding stopped. This is kind of, kind of remarkable to me. And I'm going to pause here for just a moment. Because to me, as I read this story, this woman uh, kind of comes from the entirely opposite end of the spectrum. The words, uh, I can speak them. Other side of the spectrum than Jairus, right? We don't even get this lady's name in Scripture. That's how unimportant she is, right? Good, good answer. <laughs> Glad nobody said amen to that. <laughs> that was a test. But seriously, culture, culture doesn't esteem her even enough to remember her name. And she comes out uh, on this other side of this kind of almost polarizing to Jairus. You see, where Jairus had 12 years of enjoyable experience with the life and joy of, her, of his daughter, right? And we read that his daughter was 12 years old, that was dying. The last 12 years, we can probably infer were pretty good for Jairus. We see this woman contrasted with immense suffering and pain. And loss. More than what we immediately would just recognize. It wasn't just the fact that she was sick, but that sickness would actually exile her from all community. Because in this day and age, with that kind of bleeding, you would be considered ceremonially unclean and you would have to withdraw from society in all aspects. You see, where Jairus, uh, you, um, 
where Jairus was the leader of a synagogue, the, the center of religious life in, in this culture, this woman, wouldn't have, would have, this woman was considered unclean. She would have been living in exile, let alone allowed to worship in a synagogue. You see, according to the Jewish ideas of the time, that this woman, if she touched anyone, she imparted her uncleanliness to them, and uncleanliness would not allow them to take part in any aspect of Israel's worship. So she was, she was isolated. She was alone, suffering for the last 12 years. This is not even like the physical toll that would have been exacted on her. This was just the kind of the byproduct of that. We read that Jairus was a synagogue ruler, and just culturally speaking, we can infer that he was probably pretty well off. He, he probably had money and uh, money to spare. Whereas this woman, Scripture tells us, she exhausted everything that she had in search for a cure and found no hope. They're seemingly at different ends of the kind of social spectrum here with different things, but they both have a problem. They both have a problem only Jesus can fix. They both come in desperation from different worlds, different circumstances, different backgrounds, even different attitudes in how they approach Jesus. But spoiler alert, <laughs> they both actually receive healing. They both receive the miraculous in response to faith. And it's pretty exciting stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty pretty stoked about this. And it says there that immediately the flow of blood stopped. That's pretty remarkable. You see, according to the thinking of the day, when this unclean woman reached out to touch Jesus, he would have been made unclean. Right? That's the thought that would have permeated culture in that day. But because of the nature of Jesus and the power of God, that isn't how it worked, actually. <laughs> when she touched his garment, Jesus wasn't made unclean. The woman was made whole. That's awesome, is it not? And when we come to Jesus with our sin and our mess and our problems and our brokenness and our issues, we don't somehow make him less Jesus. He actually makes us whole. That's good news, friends. And so somebody here needs to know this this morning. Your mistakes, your shortcomings, the mess that you've made of your life, and your thought that you can't bring it to Jesus because you're not good enough is a complete disgrace and slap in the face to the power of who Jesus actually is. He's not intimidated by your junk. He's not intimidated by your mess. He wants you to bring it to him because he's not actually affected by it the way that you are. You think that somehow you're going to disgrace God because you've made a mistake and a mess of your life? In fact, he looks at the disgrace of your life and sees it as an opportunity and as a canvas for him to do something remarkable in. And that's powerful and good news, friends. So we go on and we, we continue to read this story. He says, who touched me? Jesus kind of stops, right? And his disciples, this is Nate's paraphrase version, he's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Who touched you? Do you see all these people? Right? There's a multitude of people pressed up. It actually says the New King James uses this word thronged around him, meaning that they were so pressed up against him that it was so congested that it would have been hard to even move. It's actually the same word that we read uh, when we talk about choked and all this other stuff. Uh, it's very, very interesting and deliberate choice of words. There was a great crowd, great cloud of people around Jesus that this woman would have had to press through and grab hold of Jesus' garment and, and even to, to get close to him. And he has the nerve, right, the audacity to, to stop everything and said, who touched me? And his disciples respond like, what do you mean who touched me? Everybody's touching you, Jesus. We're touching you right now. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> he says, everyone denied it. And Peter said, Master, the whole crowd is pressing up against you. But Jesus said, someone deliberately, everybody say deliberately. deliberately. I want you to take note of this. Touched me, for I felt healing power go out from me. 
When the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and fell to her knees in front of him. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Oh, this is powerful. What word did I just ask you to say? Notice how there's a difference between the people that are just casually bumping into Jesus and the one that deliberately reaches out and touches Jesus. Friends, I believe church is full of people that are content with just being around Jesus. Casually bumping into him, maybe on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night, but there's something entirely different that transpires when faith is stirred up in somebody's life that presses through the crowd and deliberately reaches out to touch Jesus. Friends, there's something to be said of intentionality. You see, we can imagine some... I'm going to read this. We can imagine someone who, because of the press of the crowd, bumped up against Jesus. When the woman's miracle was revealed, they might say, I bumped into Jesus too, but I didn't get a healing. My back still hurts. Come on, Jesus, what's that about? And you, you laugh right now, but I sit as a pastor of a church and I hear people come with this same kind of similar type of complaint before my ears all the time. They tell me, I've been faithful. I've been, like, I come to church and I just haven't seen God move the same way that he's moving in so-and-so's life. What they don't know is that so-and-so has been fasting and praying and seeking the hand of God. One thing again and again and again that we see throughout Scripture is those that intentionally seek after God find Him. There's a promise there. Don't be content with just being in the crowd and being around Jesus if you're not going to reach out and touch Him. Because what you're actually doing is you're inhibiting people that are trying to get close to Jesus to actually grab hold of Him. Seriously, friends, if you're just content with just being around and you just want to, you know, I go to Open Door Church or I'm a Christian, I'm part of the Assemblies of God and you just want to be a part of a social club, this is not the place for you. I mean that with as much love and respect as I can possibly have, but I want to be around people that are willing to press in and grab hold of Jesus because those that are willing to just be casually associated with him just to be around Jesus actually inhibit the ones that want to get to Jesus from getting there. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, It is not every contact with Christ that saves men. It is the arousing of yourself to come near to him. The determinate, the personal, resolute, believing touch of Jesus Christ which saves. Hmm. <laughs> In the midst of this story, <laughs> right? I thought we were talking about Jairus and his dead daughter, his dying daughter. Oh, spoiler alert, she dies. Here we go. <laughs> daughter. He said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking to her, a message arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. He told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. Before I go on with this, somebody here needs to know this. You've never once troubled Jesus with your mistakes. You've never once troubled Jesus with asking him to move in your life. You've never once troubled Jesus with asking him to save, asking him to heal, asking him to deliver. That has never been the response that Jesus has had or ever will have. This was something that the servant didn't understand, that, that Jairus wasn't troubling the teacher wasn't troubling the master. It's actually the reason why he came when he tells us that he came to seek and save the lost. We read that he came because the sick need a physician. 
And he's talking more than just physical there. Hmm. But this news comes, right, that Jairus' daughter is dead. Not that, oh, she got really sick or the fever, like, the fever didn't break. Because there's a lot of news that we can kind of come up with a plan B for, right? Death is not one of them. Right? That, that's, that sentence is pretty certain in most contexts, right? And I imagine Jairus hears this report and probably grow a little frustrated with Jesus maybe at this moment. If he's thinking carnally, thinking naturally, this is, this is my inference, this is, this is just the way that I kind of process this story. But if I was Jairus and I, I saw all this going on, Jesus, couldn't you have just hurried up a little bit? I look like a fool coming and falling at your feet. <laughs> you are my last option. You are my only hope. And we, we, didn't, we didn't get there fast enough, Right? This fear, this, this frustration, this discouragement comes at hearing this news. But can I tell you, I think Jesus and Jairus hear this report differently. Whereas there's discouragement, maybe frustration, even disappointment, all these different things, these emotions that are welling up inside Jairus at the, at the news of the death of his daughter. I believe Jesus hears the report quite differently and says, great. <laughs> Now I can really do something with this because our God delights in accomplishing the impossible. Because if she wasn't quite dead yet, <laughs> they could say, wow, she just got better. <laughs> but God loves in moving in impossible circumstances and situations. And an aspect of faith is to look and see and hear things like heaven hears and sees and looks at things. Because there's circumstances and situations that the world might say is hopeless. That you might have drummed up in your own sense of, uh, of kind of understanding and, and ride things off as hopeless and gone. But Jesus delights in the impossible, in doing the impossible. And I love that about him. And he hears this report and we see him respond in such a powerful way. He says, when Jesus heard what had happened, he said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Again, like last week, he, he comes to the mother and says, don't cry at your son's funeral. Here, your daughter just died. Don't be afraid. Jesus, like, we need to work on your tact a little bit. Like, we need to work on, like, your bedside manner, right? Because this is, this is not, like, somebody's tell Jesus that this isn't appropriate to say, right? That's, what, that's where my mind goes. But when you're God, <laughs> and you know the end of the story, you can have some certainty with the way that you say things. And he says, don't be afraid, but rather, oh, I love this, <laughs> Just have faith. She will be healed. The reason why Jesus tells Jairus not to be afraid, to have faith, I don't believe that they were two separate commands. I believe fear is a great enemy to faith. And I believe it's very difficult to, in the midst of being controlled by fear, to have faith that God's actually in control. When we place our faith and our trust in Jesus, it relinquishes us and it releases us that the power of fear holds over our life. Of what if, of why not, of how come. Hmm. She's going to get healed. When they arrive at the house... Jesus wouldn't let anyone go in with him except for Peter, James, and John, the little girl's father and mother. The house was filled with people weeping and wailing. But he said, stop the weeping. She isn't dead. She's only asleep. Notice this. The crowd laughed at him because they all knew she had died. 
Then Jesus took her by the hand and said in a loud voice, My child, get up. And at that moment, her life returned, and she immediately stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. And her parents were overwhelmed, but Jesus insisted that they not tell anyone what had happened. I'm going to hit on a, a, a kind of a seemingly insignificant part of this story, but I love the fact that Jesus kicks everybody out of the house. Because in this, in this time frame, we talked a little bit about last week, that it was a common occurrence when somebody was sick and dying and on their deathbed, that you would hire people from the community to come out and professionally mourn at a funeral. That's what we encountered in, in the last chapter. The last story is a little weird, right? These people are professional mourners. And they're here to mourn the death of this child. They know the child has died. They've got the report. And Jesus kicks them out because they're not invested like the little girl's mother and father are, right? <laughs> they're, they're not invested. They, 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 don't have, they don't have faith to believe for something greater. They're not like Jairus who just saw God do a miraculous work, just saw Jesus heal this woman that had this issue of blood for the last 12 years. Jesus kicks them out. And it's in spite of their mocking. It's in spite of their laughter at this ridiculous thing that Jesus says and uh, that Jesus raises this little girl from the dead. I wrote this. Notice how the crowd laughs and mocks Jesus because they think that death has the final say. You see, I believe right now that God is moving in such a spectacular way that those that are just standing by, those that are just spectators, those that are just kind of casually around their hired hands, they're just professional mourners, whatnot, they're going to mock God and say that it's impossible for so and so to be saved. It's impossible for God to move in such a mighty way in so-and-so's life. It's impossible for, for any of this. They're too far gone and it's too late for them. They've ridden off all hope of salvation. They've ridden off all hope of God moving. And it's in spite of that that God's going to move. We've been, we've been reading these stories about how God has raised the dead of seeing his hand move and seeing how he responds to situations. And we've been kind of looking at it through that lens of those that are spiritually dead and dying that need a touch from Jesus. And last week we, we read this story where Jesus shows up uninvited, miraculously into that little boy's life, right? Uninvited. <laughs> we read in this story, <laughs> something a little bit different, right? We look at Jairus, who's a father who goes out and seeks out Jesus for his child's life. I believe that God wants to save souls. I still believe that he's in the business of reaching into circumstances and situations and setting things right and showing himself as Savior. Is he not? We've been praying for revival. We've been seeking God to move. But I believe that a mark of any genuine move of God is going to be that the lost are saved. That's the greatest miracle. More miraculous than actually seeing the dead raised is when a heart comes alive with Jesus. And that's awesome. I've seen the dead raised. I've told the story about how I walked in and I found my mother who had overdosed on heroin. And I was there when I saw breath come back to her and her spirit resuscitated. I saw the dead raised. Not just once, but three different times. That doesn't motivate me to worship Jesus quite like when somebody gives their life to the Lord. That's really cool. I can, it, it makes for a great conversation when I'm sharing my testimony or something like that. That's awesome. But more importantly than any healing that I've ever seen, I've seen blind eyes open. I've seen deaf ears here. We saw all kinds of crazy stuff when we were in ministry school. And it stirs faith that God can do that kind of stuff again. And he's still moving and we champion that. But I get far more excited when people give their lives to the Lord. Hmm. 
see, we encountered a couple different stories here. And my, my prayer is maybe you're like Jairus in this story, and your faith is small, and Jesus wants to grow it. There's a delay, right, <laughs> in this story. But I believe that that delay was an intentional delay on Jesus' part. Uh, I believe that, there was, that that was allowed to happen sovereignly, sovereignly by God in order that faith might continue to be stirred in Jairus' heart. Right? <laughs> he got to see this miraculous thing take place. But maybe you're like Jairus. And the Lord's moved upon your heart to fall at his feet this morning for somebody else's miracle. That your heart might be burdened like Jairus's was burdened for his own daughter. Maybe the Lord would lay somebody upon your heart that you would grab hold of Jesus in intercession that God might move in their life. Just like a Mr. Halverson did for me when I was a freshman in high school. Maybe you're like the woman with the issue of blood. Maybe you're like this woman who was bleeding. <laughs> and you need to grab hold of Jesus for your own life this morning. Maybe you need to intentionally and deliberately press through the crowd and grab hold of the Lord. I don't know your situation. I don't know your circumstance. I don't know what's going on in any of your lives, really. That's not true. I know some of you, but the one thing I know that you cannot afford to be is someone that's just casually bumping into Jesus. Don't be a spectator in the crowd. Be one that's intentional about pressing in and grabbing hold of the Lord. Holy Spirit. I'm preaching this message this morning because I believe God wants to bring a great harvest to Pagosa Springs. I preached the message last week and talking about how faith was ignited and the message of gospel and the message of Jesus started to go forth. It must have worked because <laughs> when when Jesus gets back on the scene here from crossing the lake, there's great crowds that are pressing up against Jesus. That synagogue rulers who wouldn't have been caught dead <laughs> being associated with this guy wind up falling at his feet. And I believe that God's going to start releasing faith to believe for the impossible. I believe God's going to start releasing faith to his children, to you and I in this house to believe God to save miraculously. Talk about how it only takes one. <laughs> only takes God doing something miraculous in one person's life to, to release faith to say, God, do it again. Father, I'm just asking that you do that. I'm asking for my friends. I'm asking for my brothers and sisters in this room that we would be burdened with your heart. That you would give greater faith, a greater measure of faith to this congregation. To believe you at your word to believe that you're a God that still saves, to believe that you still have good intentions for your people. Because we want to see you move. We want to see you glorified.
we're going to make a little bit of space this morning. I, I really believe that some of you in this place are going to have a heart like Jairus, where you might even be uncertain, your faith is small, but you're desperate. <laughs> Lord's going to begin to lay people on your heart that you might come fall at Jesus' feet with the same kind of weight that you would fall at Jesus' feet for your own children. Some of them are even going to be your own children. I believe the Lord's going to give us his heart for the lost. I believe there's somebody in here that is like this woman who you've tried everything, you've exhausted every resource, you've exhausted every, every, every trail that you could follow, and things still aren't working out. You feel isolated, you feel alone. You feel like it, it's even difficult, you, difficult for you to imagine coming to Jesus because you've been labeled unclean, you've been labeled as an outcast. Jesus wants you to know that you're welcome this morning. That he will respond to a deliberate, intentional decision to chase after him, to grab hold of him. Father, would you, would you not let us be burdened Lord, with the weights and cares of this world, but rather burden us with your heart, masking that apathy would find no root, that she would be glorified. We exalt your name. We need you. Put on some music. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Our ministry is made possible entirely by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this message and would like to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, visit us online at www.opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give, see our service times, and stay connected with Open Door Church. We hope to see you soon.